back to the Vantage Performance Podcast. I'm Phil Dobby. Michael Fingland, the Managing Director of Vantage Performance, joins me again. And this time we're here to talk about the six reasons that businesses fail. And of course, if you know what to avoid, you can sit about making sure it doesn't happen to your business. Uh, and a little later, we'll look at the government's proposed changes to the insolvency laws and how that will help businesses get out of a tight spot. It could make a big difference and help reduce the business failure rate. We'll get onto that in just a moment. But first, uh, let's go through those six reasons businesses fail, Michael. And number one is a sudden impact event. And I guess that could be within your business or it could be something that's happened in the economy or it could be, I guess, the action of a competitor as well, couldn't it? Yeah, that's right, Phil. And the the reason why we talk about this a lot is a lot of directors, advisors, banks, lawyers, etc., you know, when we talk about uh, you know what are the real reasons for business failure? They 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 all come up with the same ones, which we which we used to do many years ago as well, which is you know declining earnings, um, you know uh, poor cash flow, you know all the usual things that are rolled out. You know um, creditors are being paid late, but really they're symptoms. And and the reason why we're talking about this is to try and really elevate this whole issue and put a, a spotlight, if you like, on the real reasons for business failure, because they're just symptoms, the, mm. the typical symptoms. And the real reasons for business failure, um, which is what we're going to talk about today, uh, are, are the most critical things that all the all the boards and, and, and stakeholders around the, around the country really need to be focusing on if we're going to have a, a meaningful impact on the rate of business failure, which is, as you know, what we're all about. And and one of those first big ones, though, is, is, is quite common, is that sudden impact event, which is... You know, a sudden downturn in the industry. Um, you, you, you know, for a lot of SMEs, they might have significant exposure to one major client, which is typical. You know, that the general rule of thumb is you shouldn't have one client more than 25% of your revenue base. Yeah. However, in the SME space, typically one client might make up 50, 60, 80%. And we've seen that a lot in the last few years in and around the mining industry, where a lot of mining services companies that have grown exponentially in the boom, you know, got exposed to one major client. That major client pulls back on their capex, and all of a sudden, you know, half their revenue has disappeared overnight, which makes it very, very difficult to uh, to restructure their business. Right. So the suggestion is then that you should be aware that uh, you know sudden impact events um, are foreseeable. I guess you know if you uh, if you do just have that one client or a couple of clients, then you are creating that risk. So uh, you need to be aware of, of what those events might be because you, when they happen, you've got little control over them. Exactly. And you know, there's a, a great quote by Jim Collins that I use a lot, and that is. It's what you do before the storm comes that determines whether your business is going to survive when it actually comes. And it's all about, you know, stress testing the business. You know, are you exposed to a potential shock? Because it could be just around the corner. And, and you know, you can do a lot to, uh, you know, you can, you can never change what's outside your control. You know, does the economy go into a recession? You know, does an industry go into a recession? But you can prepare your business so it's not exposed to a sudden impact event. And that's where directors really need to be focused. Okay, number two, the second reason why businesses fail, insufficient management training. Now, are we talking about financial management here or people management or all of the above? <laughs> I wish it was just one, Phil. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's just one of those, it's almost a t- taboo subject uh, because it is the elephant in the room. A, a lot of business owners are just not equipped to actually run a meaningful size business. Mm. And, you know, if I was to pick a number, you know, 80% of all CEOs um, have never uh, uh, gone to university and studied a business degree. They don't know um, how to really uh, read a balance sheet, a P&L cash flow, and do a lot of that uh, financial and analytical work. And, and and that's okay as long as they surround themselves with people who do have those skills. But yeah. unfortunately, a lot of business owners, particularly in the SME space, were great at a trade. They realised they could do 
do this for themselves and they jump into business and you know years down the track um, they realize that, that there's, there's a lot of gaps in their skill set so it's just one of those things it, it's a very tough issue to, to tackle but the key is and this is what a lot of leadership training is about is you know it, it's all about surrounding yourself with people with the with the right skills i'm not saying every director needs to go back to university but surround yourself with good financial people people yeah. with good hr skills you know close those gaps as as, as as a lot of the leaders in the space talk about, um, because that's 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 what it's all about. You know, you can never be the best at everything. You don't want to be. So it's it's uh, funny. It's being honest with yourself, then, isn't it? And actually saying, well, this is, is what I am good at, and uh, if I'm honest with myself, I'm not so good at all of these other things, and so they're the gaps Absolutely. I need to fill. And realizing it's not an admission of failure if yeah. you do, if you're not a guru at financial management. Um, you know that's not your skill set. Bring someone in who is, uh, and and all of the really successful entrepreneurs around the world. One thing they always say is that the key to their success is they surround themselves with people with the skills that they don't have. Right. The third reason for failure is not acting early enough. So so living in denial, in other words. Yeah, it is. And then as you know, we we regularly do the. Uh, survey every couple of years around the barriers to early intervention. This is the number one reason why businesses fail. Every every business can be saved if you act early enough. You know, and that's our motto. You know, there's there's always a way, and and that's what that's what we're all about is trying to to create awareness around uh, the real reasons for business failure, the the whole concept of early intervention, collaborating. You know, with with your stakeholders so you can deal with these issues before they become terminal. Um, and, and, you know, as, as I often say, you know, a matter of weeks to three months can make all the difference, you know, can turn the probability of turning a business around from 20% to 80% just by getting in there a matter of weeks or two or three months earlier. So, you know, and it's incumbent upon um, the management team within a company uh, to, to, to make the directors aware because they may be in denial, as you say, ego may be driving their their, their, their reluctance, but it's also incumbent upon their, their banker, their lawyer, their accountant to be close enough to their, to their client so they can see these warning signs and provide that objectivity and suggest they need some, some skills to close those gaps that we talked about before. Yeah. Because, you know, one of the uh, simple uh, examples I give is, you know, as a director, you engage uh, an expert to be your finance person, an, ex- an expert um, salesperson to head up sales. When your business is in a crisis, um, why would you try and muddle through on your own? Why wouldn't you hire an expert in restructuring and turnaround? Yeah. Um, and, and once you sort of talk in that level, they, that sort of light bulb goes on. Well, that's right. It's, it's a critical part of any business life cycle. And, you know, but, but the, the, big, the big focus here is a lot of directors will not seek help early enough because of those barriers. And most of those barriers are fear-related. So it's incumbent upon those. The, the key advisors to the group, and that includes the management team, to, to really put the hand up and say, hey, we need some help. You, you mentioned the the phrase, you know, that the, the situation becomes terminal. I was thinking, well, it's, mm. a, bit, it's a bit like going and seeing the doctor, isn't it? And if you don't go and see the doctor early enough and you find you've got some terminal disease, you know, it's and it's too late, there's nothing that can be done about it. But you go to the doctor because the doctor's an expert and it's the same situation, yep. really. Absolutely. Now, the, the fourth one, uh, reason why businesses fail, not collaborating with uh, financiers and stakeholders. And I can see why people don't do this. They don't want to involve them too early in case things do turn around, in case things get better. Yeah, a key issue we found when we started surveying the real reasons why directors don't seek help is of the top 10, as I alluded to before, eight are fear-related. And fear, as you know, is our strongest emotion. And you know, at the heart of their fear is if they go to their bank and say, hey, you know, we've had some issues, we, we need some assistance. 
they have an innate fear that the bank is going to close ranks yep. and and steer them down a, a you know a receivership path. And unfortunately, for every every ten situations where you know, the banks have collaborated and actually helped save the business. There's one that hits the headlights where where business has collapsed and business directors assume that the bank acted too early. But I can tell you, banks don't want you to fail. Mm. They they don't want their name up in lights in the newspapers as, as being the receiver or, you know, having to appoint a receiver. They don't want that. Um, but you know how to manage, you have to know how to manage them. And a lot of management teams aren't equipped to know how to present the information in a way that alleviates any concerns they've got uh, and, and, and will ensure the bank will actually support you. But unfortunately, they leave it too late. The banks then assume that they've been hiding things or or they don't know the, the real uh, issues at play. Um, so, and in the absence of any information in that void, which goes to the heart of why creditors act as well, if they're in the absence of information and knowledge and solution, they will they will assume the worst. And, and that's why it becomes much harder to rebuild those relationships um, if you uh, engage them late in the piece or if they force themselves upon you late in the piece. Right. But could it work the other way that you go to the bank and the bank's saying, well, look, you know, you've got your problems. But I mean, it's it's way too early days right now. Uh, talk to us when you have got real problems. Yep. And, and I've seen that. And, and, and the, the credit you get within the bank for going to them early, um, you, cannot, you cannot put a value on that. They will support you. Um, if, if they know that you're working with them and you're collaborating with them, you will get 10 times the amount of support than if you bring it in too late and there's a perception that you've, you've, you've been hiding information from them. So it, it's a huge barrier because there's, t- there's been too many instances where, where you know, directors have heard of their friends and colleagues and peers having their business you know, put into receivership and you know, there's always <laughs> five, st- five sides to every story. But I can tell you in my experience, if you collaborate with them and you, and, you, and you know how to present the information to a financier to alleviate the concerns, they will support you. Right. Okay, now number five, uh, and there is a gratuitous plug here. I can see it for Vantage Performance. Uh, <laughs> one, one reason for fail, uh, businesses failing is that they don't engage specialist advisors. Yeah, and you know, it's, it's, it's actually, <laughs> I can see how it's a plug, but it's, it's actually what the banks say. The banks, because... Hmm. The key to turning around a business or, or, or alleviating concerns that stakeholders have got in this, in this space is, you know, 50% of the challenge, you know, you've got to have the right strategy, the right capital structure, the right people and systems to, to resolve the issues. And that's part of what we call our, our SCP model. Um, but 50%, that's only 50% of the, the solution. 50% of turnaround management is stakeholder management and rebuilding what we call the confidence gap. Because by the time a, a business gets into strife, um, the, the the confidence levels that the stakeholders, and that's the financiers, shareholders, external parties may have in the management team has deteriorated quite somewhat. And it's it's often impossible for that management team to repair that confidence gap, to, to close that confidence gap in the time frame required. And that's the critical bit. It, they might get there over 18 months, but if you've got only three months to solve this confidence gap, they will never get there on their own. And the only way you can do that is by bringing in a turnaround professional or, or someone who is who is known to your stakeholders, to the financiers, has a reputation for getting them out of the mess many, many times before. Because all of a sudden you get an infusion of confidence. They can then rely upon the, the, the brand of the firm to close that gap. Because it, 
it, it's the only way to short short circuit that that process. And yeah. the banks themselves say that um, when when you go to them with with a uh, a plan, they want to know where do, where do your specialist advisors fit in this, and have, uh, do they endorse the plan? Um, are they have they been part of the formulation of the plan? And have you retained them going forward? It's one of the key criteria that all banks look for. Uh, in whether they're going to support a business, and it goes to the heart of the the uh, Turnbull government's innovation strategy, which um, you know we're going to talk about right. in, uh, in a minute yeah. about yeah. about um, you know how do we foster an environment where directors do seek help early. Yeah. Plus, I imagine, you know, it's, it's not your day-to-day operation, is it, to change the direction that your business is going? So you're very op- normally very operationally focused in your business, and you can't just sort of close the shop while you, uh, while you do all this stuff. So, you, I mean, apart from the expertise, you need that extra pair of hands as well to try and uh, formulate right. this turnaround. And, and it's, it's innate in every situation like this. It's, in, it's virtually impossible for a director or a management team to be truly objective when they're inside a crisis. They, yeah. they just can't, and that's why board. You know, if you've got a board, the board can can be that objectivity, um, you know, for you. But if you don't have a board, you, it's impossible. It's not a fault of directors. It's just you've got so much going on, and 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 you've got so many conflicting interests. It's impossible to to realise that there has to be one to two big changes in strategy that we have to we have to implement to change the course. And that's one of the key things that we'll talk about. Yeah, well, in fact, that is the sixth point. Uh, business is not being prepared to make the big decisions. And I think in, in business, incrementalism is often a good thing, isn't it? You don't want to make sharp changes. But if things are going wrong, uh, then incrementalism is a bad thing because you use it as the excuse to move slowly forwards rather than, uh, as you say, making the big call. Yeah, and look, you know, if you're in a, a business where you're, you're growing moderately and you're profitable, you know, you, you want those one percenters. You don't want to make anything... T- you know, too radical, and those one percent is a critical. You know, move move sales by a percent, GP by a percent, take overheads down by a percent. That together, that can add up to quite a significant number. But when you're in a financial crisis, whether it's been led by an industry downturn or or loss of a major customer, or it's just been, you know, earnings have been declining over over a period of time, and you've now got a cash issue. Um, in my experience, and you know, of doing this for 25 years, there has to be one to two big changes in strategy. And it goes to the heart of how you plug that confidence gap. Uh, if the financiers to see the same old plan with a few tweaks and a couple of one percenters, one percenters in there, you're not going to close that gap. And it, and also you're not going to rectify the real reasons that are that have got you in the situation. So there has to be a focus. And that's why as soon as we go into a, a situation, often before we even start, we're looking for what are those one to two big changes in strategy we, we can identify so you can build a new plan around that, close that confidence gap, and, and, and but then in parallel with that, which is critical, is still looking for those one percenters because you need to build uh, you know, a 100-day sort of roadmap or you know runway, as we call it. So you need the one percenters in conjunction with the one to two big changes in strategy to close that confidence gap restructure the business and put it back on a stronger footing right okay there we are there's our six reasons covered i'm sure there's many others as well but they're the six big hitters as to why businesses fail now look let's let's look at this um the, the proposed changes to the insolvency law this came out of uh, the government's innovation package that was uh, introduced in december 2015 they are proposed changes at the stage where we're recording this podcast but it seems likely that it is going to go through after the after the election and it's it's aimed at um i mean tell us you know the story behind it but my understanding is it's really trying to encourage a bit more risk taking that they that they saw that the consequences of taking risk were, were just too strong so we weren't building that innovative culture in the country that's right and and you know it's pleasing that you know there, there appears to be you know, a broad uh, bipartisan support 
to reform in this area, uh, which which is sensible. So whichever government you know gets in, you know, we should see these these um, this this uh, this brought into into law very soon after the election. And yeah, risk is at the heart of this, um, particularly at the mid-market and the large corporate listed end of the end of the end of the corporate um, uh, uh, sphere, where the, the legislation as it currently stands says that if you are concerned about whether the business may be insolvent, you, you have to put the business into VA, into voluntary administration. And unfortunately, the probability of success, you know, coming out of VA in Australia, yeah. you know, is in the low single digits. Um, you know, and, and we won't go into the reasons why, but um, there's inherent uh, structural problems with with our voluntary administration um, system. However, the these what we need to foster, and which is at the heart of the, the government's innovation agenda here, is we need to come up with a regime where directors don't act too soon and put the company into VA out of fear of being held personally responsible and personally yep. liable. And we've seen that far too often at the large corporate end where you've got a, an independent board, a board of directors who don't have any financial stake in the business. They are not going to risk their personal net wealth uh, for the sake of, of, of creditors and, 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 and other stakeholders in the business. So a lot of companies get put down far too early when there were more viable, better options on the table uh, where where every stakeholder would, would have got a much stronger return and the business would have survived. So th- you know, this is all about providing this, what's called broadly a safe harbour um, Defence, where if and this goes to the heart of before I was talking about, you know, what what special advisors have you got? Because this is going to be enshrined in, in legislation very soon. Mm. So to to for directors to be afforded the safe harbour where they where they won't be sued for insolvent trading, they have to have acknowledged that they've got an issue. Um, they have to have brought in a specialist restructuring turnaround advisor. Uh, they have to have developed a plan with their endorsement, and they have to be seen to be following that plan. And, and, and the overall rider to this is they have to believe that their plan will work and is a better alternative than to going into VA. So this, this whole concept of bringing in turnaround advisors you know, into the company is going to be at the, at the heart of ensuring the directors are protected when they decide to go down the route of trying to do a turnaround versus putting it into VA. So if and it, if it's, so, it's if so it, common if, sense and, and practical and sure. it'll, it'll, it'll transform the corporate landscape for the better. So uh, if I, if, if the company ultimately is found to be trading insolvent, uh, the director will be in the clear, provided they've taken those steps, provided they've tried to turn it around. Exactly. And, and as the critical thing is they had a plan, they brought in a specialist advisor, and they were seen to be following that plan, not right. sort of going back to their, their old ways, which got them back in, you know, into trouble. So that there's a lot of steps in this process, and it is. It's, it's, it's a clear checklist. It'll, it'll foster... Uh, more objectivity, uh, greater risk taking, but in reality, it's you're not taking more risk. You're actually taking risk off the table, but you're you're willing to collaborate with your stakeholders and go down a path which is going to be a much better result for for everybody than simply putting into VA, which nine times out of ten, or ninety five percent, ninety five percent of the time, leads to liquidation or a very very disruptive and costly uh, uh, process. Right. Well, it's going to be interesting to see what impact it has on the statistics, isn't it? But uh, it's, it, as you say, sounds like uh, perfect common sense. It's surprising it didn't happen earlier, but at least it's happening now. Uh, Michael Thingland, appreciate your time, as always, and uh, we'll catch you again soon. Thanks, Phil. And in fact, when we come back, we will be talking about the 10 guiding principles to successful turnarounds. That's next time on the Vantage Performance Podcast. Make sure you subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud. I'm Phil Dobby. Catch you next time. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.